Well, this evening we are returning back to, this is our second week of opening up the book of Micah. <clears throat> this evening we'll be looking at chapter 2. I believe you'll find that on page 776 in your pew Bible if you're using one. I'm not looking at one right now, so if it's a wrong page, blame uh, Caleb or Carl or somebody else, okay? <laughs> um, there is an old saying while you're turning there. Uh, there's an old saying uh, that goes, in the absence of love, there is law. Well, as it turns out that when you, that saying is placed under the proverbial microscope, it's as true as saying that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. There was a time, for instance, when here in America, there was no need for one to lock uh, the door to one's home uh, or be particularly concerned for the safety of one's child if they were out and about in the neighborhood. I would leave my neighborhood early in the morning and come back and late in the evening, and, and my aunt had no thought of, of any danger occurring. That is no longer uh, the case. Because folks started entertaining or entering the homes of folks and dispossessing them of their belongings. The home that I lived in, in St. Croix, we lived in it from 1969, and for the first time it was broken into in 2009. Same thing with the house that I lived with, Dorothy and I lived with in Pompano. We lived in that house, we moved in in 1995, and it was literally about six months before we came here that that house was broken into. And so times has changed, you see. And so because of that, laws have had to be enacted for breaking and entering and all sorts of other laws. In the absence of love, there is law. In the business realm, acts of greed and, and lustful power made it necessary to enact laws whose aim were to pro prohibit companies from forming monopolies and engaging in all sorts of other vices. These laws were are termed, many, in many cases, antitrust laws. And again, the purpose was to protect the process of competition for the benefit of consumers. That would be you and I. In establishing these laws, they were making sure there were strong incentive for businesses to, to operate efficiently, keep prices down, and foster an environment where folks strive to preserve the quality of the goods they produce. Again, none of these laws would have been necessary if love was the prevailing disposition in the hearts of the people in any society. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He responded by providing encapsulation of the first four commandments, all of which address one's vertical relationship with God. And then the next six, which address the horizontal relationships we have with one another. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now through the abundance of his love and, and via a man named Abraham, God called the people to himself and in recognition of their fallen nature, he provided the law I just alluded to as a lamp unto their feet and a guide unto their path and to demonstrate his character. It was an articulation of his nature and his character. He is a holy God and a just God and requires those who were created in his image to reflect 
his nature, and his character. The love that was eternally shared between the Godhead was now to be shared and and reciprocated with and by his creation. This was to be especially on display through the nation of Israel who were loved by God and called to be salt and light to the nations around them. But over the course of Israel's history, their love for God waned and waned. In 1 Samuel, they cried out for a king like the nations around them, essentially casting God off as their king. Then little by little, and sometimes in leaps and bounds, those kings, those kings that they wanted, the mass majority of them led the people further and further away from God. And so as we open the book of Micah, and as you have heard last week, that is what you have here. A people who have departed from their first love and who are in gross violation of what Jesus said should have been the modus operandi of their hearts. They don't love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. And they don't love their neighbors as themselves. And as always the case, the first is directly correlated with the second. Instead, it was quite the opposite. They had become a people who speedily ran after false gods, other gods, and whose worship of the true, the one true God was nothing more than an exercise in empty religiosity, mingled with all sorts of syncretic practices, including offering up their own children as sacrificial offerings. Now, it was with that background in mind that we enter into, all of us, a heavenly courtroom which was opened in chapter 1 with God presiding through his prophet Micah. In chapter 1, the hearing is articulated through two oracles that note Samaria and Jerusalem's offenses against God. And now this chapter, we hear more specifically of the people's offenses that were perpetuated against their neighbors, their own people. Again, one flows into the other. And so the details in this case have already been heard. They've already been heard, reviewed, and deliberated upon. And as we now enter the courtroom, what we become privy to is the judge's delivery of the closing, his closing speech and declaration of judgment and mercy for those whom he chose. In this closing speech, we're going to hear about three sets of people, maybe four, that make up two groups. Now, brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. So let's give close attention to the unfolding of this courtroom drama in God's word as we now read our text. It reads, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them. And houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. 
how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The woman of my people you drive out from the delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of the uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about in utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Again, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to that which you would have us to hear through this text. Give us a zeal to want to walk in new obedience before you, to glorify you through the, uh, our, the acts and the things that we say and do, and the way we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ and in society as a whole. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Saints, this evening I'm going to comment on, on what we just heard and see under three overarching headings of, of what we saw in this courtroom. First, there's a verbal takedown of the greedy landowners and those in political power, if you will. Then there's a verbal takedown of the power brokers enablers, the false prophets of that day. And then there's a word of hope and deliverance to and for a remnant, God's remnant. So first, a verbal takedown of the greedy landowners and those in political power. Verses 1 through 5 make up an oracle. It's God's accusation against them. The chapter opens with woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house and man in his inheritance. Now you heard me allude to the first and second portions of the law and the way Jesus summarizes it. Well, these folks were directly violating the Ten Commandments, which states, you shall not covet. That is yearn to possess, entertain a deep desire to have anything that belongs to your neighbor. God is the one that owns it, gave it to them. They're his stewards. They didn't care, however. Not only did they not have no concern for this protective prohibition, they replaced any thought of it with a level of intentionality that even occupied the times they should have been resting. Even when they should have been sleeping, they were devising evil. They devised wickedness and work evils under bed, we hear. 
Folks, remember this. Remember this. If you leave your first love, any one of us, then all that's left for you is to fulfill the lust of your new love, yourself. Your, your thoughts will turn inwards and your desires will reflect that orientation. And whatever sin you're prone to, all of us have besetting sins. All of us have sins in our fallen nature that we're prone to. And whatever sin you're prone to, if you walk in the flesh, if you do not walk in the spirit, if you do not look to God as your deliverer, you will start, that sin that you're prone to will start to grab hold of you. If these men had paid heed to God's exhortation to love him with all their heart, soul, and mind, listen to what the pondering of their hearts would have been like. They were pondering evil and dispossessing people of stuff and doing wrong stuff, but listen to what the heart that is meditating on the Lord sounds like. This is Psalm 63, 5 through 7. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Why? When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing. The voice of a person whose eyes is on the Lord, who understands that it is the Lord that has delivered them and who has not walked away from that which God has called them to, to love him. This, brothers and sisters, is the heart at disposition that will then love its neighbor. But that's not what you have here. Instead, what we have, what we hear is as soon as daybreak, they go about carrying out their evil plan of dispossessing uh, them of those of which God had given, people of which God had given to them as their possession. And you know what? When you hear the word daybreak and dawn, all times in scripture, you know, uh, bad might be in the evening, late, uh, distress might be in the evening, but joy comes in the morning. In the morning is when they typically would say to have um, the release of evil and different things to that nature in all sorts of different culture because it was seen as a time when light would come to, to overtake darkness. And in the midst of that, they're so perverted that they are literally acting even against that very thing. They were that perverted. Instead of using that which they themselves had received by the goodness of God, God is the one that already, they were rich. They were the ones that had stuff. They were the elite. They were the ones that were in power. But instead of using that which God had given them, for we know the scriptures declare that our wealth comes from God. All things that we receive come from God. And instead of using that which they had received by the goodness of God for the purposes of God and their neighbor, there in their greed and covetousness became purveyors of the word which aptly describes those who are caught in this sin. That word is more, more, give me more. It's like the man in Luke 12 who said, who pondered of his great barns and said that he would just build more barns. And the Lord said, hey, your, your soul will be required of you this day. Folks, I'm pretty sure that it was folks like this that Asaph referred to when he decried the wealth of the wicked in Psalm 73. And just as Asaph declared their end in that psalm through the revelation of God, so the Lord through Micah 
communicates what could be termed a punishment that fits the crime, judgment here in our text. The wealthy landowners will have everything that they had taken away from them. They'll be dispossessed. It's not mentioned here by name. They're not mentioned here by name, but it will be through the hands of the Assyrian army who would come from the north. The nation who Isaiah refers to in his book as the rod of God's anger. Every single thing will be taken away from them, including any hope of a right spiritual standing before God. Instead, they will be utterly wiped out. They will not be around to claim any inheritance in the future assembly of the Lord, the text says. Oh, how the mighty, the powerful, the hardy of heart has fallen. How could such a thing happen? Are there other factors that contributed to this? How could people who were so blessed of God walk with God and then be led away from God? Were there other things that contribute to this? And the answer is absolutely yes. It's the second thing in our hearing. It's the verbal takedown of the power brokers enablers. They were enabled by the false prophets of that day. Here it might be helpful to remember that Micah was a contemporary of both Isaiah and Hosea. They prophesied around the same time. So the word of God was being faithfully proclaimed by faithful men of God. But in every generation where the faithful have existed, there have also existed those whose master was and is not the same as the one whom we serve. They, as Jesus states in John 8:44, belong to their father, and their will is to carry out their father's will and desire. And so it was with these false prophets. They told the people what they wanted to hear and not what they needed to hear. And when Micah, Isaiah, and Hosea, or anyone else speaking for the Lord spoke, they quickly dismissed it in the hearing of the people. Here we find them saying, do not preach. This is them speaking to Micah, to Isaiah, to Hosea, to whoever. Do not preach. One should not preach of such things. Again, the such things here is the content of what Micah has communicated, especially the judgment that has been declared. These false prophets fire back with retorts like, disgrace will not overtake us. Surely disgrace will not overtake us. Surely God will not do anything. In other words, there will be no taunt song. You see, there's a taunt song in here that people would look at them and say, look at these individuals. We're suffering with them, but look at them. There will be no taunt song rehearsing the fall of the wealthy. After all, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Folks, what they're implying here is what we know today as greasy or cheap grace. Oh, God is a God of love. He will not judge anyone, especially if they belong to him. He is long-suffering. His, his grace is greater than our sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So have at it. Sin big. Sin often, live your best life now. This, my friends, was exactly what the people wanted to hear and what kept them callously walking in the way of sin. All the scholars I've read or, 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 or assume or assert that these false prophets were 
probably using God's own word to lead the people this way. In Exodus 34, 6 specifically is what they're alluding to. We hear these words, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. These men would go on from there to preach about a glorious truth. Satan always uses truth, folks. He always mixes truth with falseness. But they would go on to preach a glorious truth, God's long-suffering grace. Yes, our Lord is long-suffering. Yes, his grace is greater than our sin. All of that is true. But the problem is they would never get to the very next line, 34-7, which states, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The only way we are cleared is because of Jesus Christ. But we cannot go on sinning. God has called us to live holy because he is. So folks, this same tactic is utilized by a mass of folks in pulpits today. And just like in Micah's day, many of those who are in power heap to them, go to them, and are, with tickling ears, Go to these churches, you hear these folks that are high in power and you're hearing them decry the fact that they're Christians. And then you look at the things that they say and, and the things that they pass and the things that they allow and the way they treat people. And then you ask yourself, wait a minute, something is a little bit amiss here. And so this is the same exact situation that you have here. And so the result is what we see all around us today. Folks declaring to be Christians but living as if God is not calling on us to live holy, both for his purposes and for his glory. My friend Rick Phillips weighs in on this writing, false prophecy not only deadens the conscience of its hearers against the moral demands of God, but it also cheapens God's grace. God's true grace produces a harvest of holiness and peace, but cheap grace winks at sin and evil. In reality, cheap grace is no grace at all. Cheap grace incites a false presumption that will prove perilous when God's judgment falls on sinners who have trusted it. And that, brothers and sisters, is exactly what happened to the folks here in our text. The assuaging of their consciences with the fast food of false teaching allowed them to literally become the enemies of the very God to whom they were supposed to be in covenant with. It gave them the liberty to excuse their resting away of the wealth of others, to have widows and their children evicted from their property so that they could possess and use it for further gain and profit. Today, the most vulnerable among us are evicted just like they were evicted the most vulnerable among us today are evicted from their mother's room for the same exact reason. And again, standing right at the forefront of this issue are those who are proclaiming stuff like, oh, that's an issue between a woman and her God. Not something you should get involved in. Listen, if one's ambition as a preacher in turns is to be influential or wealthy, then all one has to do, just take my counsel. I got two horns right now, okay? All you got to do is become a Micah 2.11 man, a woman. Do exactly as Micah says. 
become one whom Jude would categorize, categorize as an empty cloud, one who tells people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Tell folks of certain prosperity and the mandate to pursue their own happiness and good feelings. Don't dare talk about denying oneself and taking up one's cross and following Christ. Don't dare talk about sin and judgments. I want you to know in turns for about a half a second, I, I, I was tempted to do that. But then for the next 59 and a half seconds, two things came to mind. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the second one, I'm persuaded that my greater desire is to hear and experience what God now goes on to say through Micah in verses 12 and 13. My final words in our hearing, the final words in our hearing, a word or words of hope and deliverance to a remnant. Brothers and sisters, the imagery here is beyond wonderful when grasped. The good shepherd is quelching the fears of those whom he has preserved for himself. He's always had a remnant in every generation. He had a remnant in, in Genesis 6, and it was known in his people. He always has a remnant. And we often hear the words associated with the promises of God as yea and amen. If God says it, you can believe it. His hand, all knowledge, he's all powerful. All knowledge is in his grasp, and his presence is all encompassing. It is in confidence that we hear the words in this text, I will surely, in verse 12, not maybe, not might, no if and, but or suppose, no wiping your nose. We used to say that when we were growing up, right? None of that stuff. It's I will surely, surely draw you. Be assured, my remnant, those who are called by my name and known by me, no matter how things may appear, Brothers and sisters, no matter how things may appear in culture, any facet of your life, often people are like, man, my poor children, I feel bad for them. No, all you have to do is disciple your own, and God will break and keep them in any situation, in any society, in any culture. He will keep them, and he will draw them to himself. Be assured, again, those who are called by my name and known by me, no matter how things may appear, both in Judah and in Israel, both countries were devastated. Israel was already taken in. The only part of Judah that existed or was held together was Jerusalem. And so you could imagine what the folks around the rest of Jerusalem or in Jerusalem was feeling at this particular point. But God is assuring them that there is a remnant. And that remnant is coming through or is going to be protected and guided and kept by the stump of Jesse, the root of Jesse, Jesus Christ himself, who says, I am the good shepherd. I will gather you. I will go before you. That's what you're hearing. I will open the gates. Though they are encompassed, though they are surrounded, he is the one that will come in and fight for them. He is the one that will lead them out to green pastures, and I will guide you as your shepherd and lead you as your king. Folks, come hell or high water, 
I don't know if this is proper vernacular, but come hell or high water, I'm riding with Jesus. I refuse to go any other direction, and I beg of you to walk fastly and homely and honestly and honor, honor our Lord and God walking before him every step of the way. Let us not become like the other folks, but let us be the remnant. And the reason the remnant is there is by faith alone. It is their faith that is keeping them. It is the God that is keeping them, that has given them that faith, and it is that faith that is keeping them as a remnant. And no matter what we see, we walk by faith and not by sight. We look at society, and in any direction the society goes, it does not matter to us. We are guided by the God of the universe and his word, the object of our faith and our practice. We refuse to mistreat people on the basis that they are the people that God loves. We refuse to dispossess others, but instead we do the positive part of the law, promote that which they have, and foster an environment for them to walk in the goodness of God, for them to come to know the mercies of God. We preach sin because if you don't know sin, you don't really know grace. The more we understand our fallenness, the more we magnify the cross. The more we understand our debauchery and how we would fall away and cling to the cross, the more the cross becomes a source of true security. God will not change. God will hold us fast. Let us hold fast to him as he holds fast to us. Israel did not do what it was supposed to do. Be salt and light. Let us, the new Israel, do exactly what God has called us to. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing to us the waywardness of this nation. The reality of the situation is each and every one of us in this room are just as wayward as the folks that we've just heard about. We've sinned in many different ways. We've heard an articulation of them violating the 10th commandment, but the reality is we have violated all 10 of them at various times and even now. So we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the faith that you've given us, and we ask that you, by the power of your spirit, would persevere, would cause us to persevere in the midst of a lost and dying uh, culture, that we, again, would be salt and light, that we would be that remnant that you are guiding and you are keeping for your glory and for your purposes. Bless us as we go out into our spheres of influence so that we might speak and live all to the praise of your glory, impacting those spheres of influence in the way that you have called us to, again, for your purpose and for your glory. This is our earnest heart's desire, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.